Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Gass, here with Ryan Ebling. For this episode, we're watching Marie Antoinette, written and directed by Sofia Coppola, whose latest movie, The Beguiled, is in theaters now and just won her the Best Director Award at Cannes. While I'm a fan of the Sofia Coppola movies I have seen, I have never seen Marie Antoinette, and Ryan hasn't seen it since it was in theaters over 10 years ago, so the time seemed right to take a little trip to France. Marie Antoinette was pretty highly anticipated since it was Coppola's follow-up to the much-acclaimed Lost in Translation. The critics' responses were fairly tepid, mostly admiring Coppola's unique style and her coupling of modern sensibilities with the historic setting. It only earned one Oscar nomination and win for Best Costume Design. Over time, however, it seems that Marie Antoinette keeps popping up in discussions of filmmaking and examples of technical prowess. So does Marie Antoinette deserve to be examined more closely to find substance beyond the style? Or is this movie in over its head, a little like the queen herself? Keep listening. and Dauphine of France. May you have many healthy children and produce an heir to our throne. All right, so that was a clip, uh, a very short clip, shorter than the clips we usually do mm -hmm. here, uh, from the movie we're discussing in this episode, Marie Antoinette. That is uh, not Marie Antoinette that speaking. That wasn't her, no. That was Louis XV who is the king at the moment in there that's at the wedding yeah. of Marie Antoinette with his son, Louis the Sixteenth. <laughs> yeah. We know math. Yep. Really one of the few points in the movie where you're going to get plot. Yeah. So it's, mm -hmm. it's him basically saying what the, the real, the real crux of yeah, the story is, is, the is biggest that, issue. that she needs to produce an heir. Uh, and she yeah. comes from Austria to marry this, right. uh, you know, into this French family, and even family. that that plot point being the most major plot point is maybe much yeah, only it's, <laughs> emblematic. It's right. sort of a microcosm rather than actually a problem we're worried about. It's more. It's more just sort of the purpose of her being there, mm -hmm. as far as plot goes. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's why she's there is to to produce an heir, right? And and form a stronger alliance between Austria and uh, France, right? Every so. every girl's dream. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, like we said in the intro, Nate, you have not seen this movie. No. Well, I mean, I have obviously You have now. now. But Thank beforehand, goodness. no. So you don't really have a story. Do you have a story as to why you didn't see it? No, not really. Um, I, I had seen Virgin Suicides. I had seen Lost in Translation. Mm -hmm. Love both those movies. I don't know why I didn't see Marie Antoinette. I think it was just one of those that um, I didn't catch in the theater. And uh, it... it like we said in our intro, it wasn't met with real high acclaim, mm -mm. really. And right. it just was one that I never really picked up, uh, even though I do really like historical you know, period pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't traditionally. So the modern kind of twist on Peaked it. Piqued your interest. Yeah. That, that drew, drew me to it. Um, it I'm, I'm very glad we're talking about this movie. But I, I, hearing you just say the words, The Virgin Suicides, I'm like, man, I almost wish we were talking about that movie because I love <laughs> that movie so much. Okay. Uh, I've only seen it once, and it was a long time ago. But I mean, I've seen it so many times. I've listened to the soundtrack because oh, of the that's air. An amazing the air, the, soundtrack. The French band yeah. Air did the soundtrack, and it's an amazing soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And the French band Phoenix has done most of her movies since then. Uh, she likes French musicians, which is great, and French stuff. I yeah, guess apparently, real francophile. <laughs> that's yeah. But, uh, Virgin Suicides, I think, is amazing. And if you revisit it, Sofia Coppola predated Instagram by i mean almost 10 years with like just with the way the filters the you filters mean? the framing like the the title sequence everything about it is what is what became popular uh in the last five years and i think that's incredible that she, she's got that she sort should, of sense yeah. of taste and style well we mentioned that's in our last so episode that she just makes cool movies is kind yeah. of the way we put it and mm -hmm. 
And I think we can get into in our episode what we really kind of mean by that maybe, but right. um, I don't have a better way to say it than I just think she's, she's personally, I just think she, her movies are so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. she's got a sense of cool. Like it's not cool that it, it doesn't ever seem to date itself. Like no. uh, Lost in Translation still feels just as fresh mm-hmm. when you watch it now as you maybe did back in 2003. My, my, interest in Sofia Coppola actually began with the Virgin Suicides. Funnily, funnily enough, we were like my friends and I were at the movie th- theater in 1999 when Virgin Suicides came out and um we were being like good little judgmental Christians and saw the poster that just said the Virgin Suicides and we're like look at that <laughs> sinful movie. Um and then maybe like 2 years later I was into movies in a big way and heard that that was good. And I was like, all right, I'll watch it. And like, it blew me away. And funny how uh, corrupting the movies yeah. have been to you. <laughs> right. Up until that point, judging movies by their titles had really worked out for me. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, Virgin Suicides blew me away. I was like a huge Sofia Coppola fan and was bummed there wasn't anything else. And then Boston Translation mm-hmm. came out. Super excited to see that. Saw that in theaters. Loved it. Saw that a bunch of times. And so when Marie Antoinette was coming out, you were excited. I was amped um, because I just loved Sofia Coppola's movies. Uh, she could the, do no wrong up to that point. She had done no wrong. Yeah. Um, Maybe Godfather 3, but that's neither here nor there. That actually plays into what I think about Marie Antoinette. Well, okay, well then, hold, hold that thought. So we'll hold that thought. But um, <laughs> so the trailer comes out, the first trailer with the Stroke song, and it's just like, Yes. I was like, this is going to be the movie that makes me like period movies, even though I hadn't like really formulated in my mind that there's something about them that turns me off. Hmm. Um, super excited. Came out, saw it in theaters right away. And I liked it, but I wasn't like floored by it because it didn't really, I don't feel like it necessarily delivered on the style that was promised in the trailer in the way I expected it hmm. to, mm-hmm. um, which is not really anybody's fault but mine maybe. maybe. So anyway, <clears throat> I, I liked it. But you were kind of like the critics, maybe a little lukewarm on it. Yeah. Well, because it, it is pretty different from Lost in Translation mm-hmm. and uh, Virgin Suicides. In some ways. In some yeah, ways, in not some at all. Ways, right. Yeah. I know. Um, that's also part of what I want to talk about. But um, I never saw it again. Yeah. Not like with Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation that I watched over and over and over again. And what about uh, subsequent... Coppola movies uh did she rebound at all for you like uh um I mean I'll be honest I haven't seen I never saw the bling ring I never saw I did uh, not see the bling somewhere is I think the other one she did right I, I yeah I didn't see the bling ring uh so I can't speak to that I did see somewhere and it was okay uh, but maybe I should watch it again um I watched a very Murray Christmas that one was I thought pretty terrible did it you was, like that I, I, didn't, I couldn't even get through I it. it I thought it was awful I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. We're talking about the Bill Murray Christmas special on Netflix, directed by Sofia Coppola. I thought there was some good parts to it. Uh, Maybe I'll give it another chance. I mean, I don't know what you were expecting. I just didn't think it was funny at all. It certainly wasn't that. Whatever you were expecting, I was expecting to laugh a little bit, and I was like, all these jokes seem to be falling so flat. Yeah, but But I still hold Sofia Coppola very highly in my esteem. So Marie Antoinette, uh, I I found I didn't rate it on Letterboxd. Okay. Uh, I probably would have given it like a three and a half. Okay. And watching it again, I just bumped it up to a four. Ah, nice. Yeah. What did you rate it? I am going to rate this um, a really strong four stars, mm-hmm. but like really strong to where I'm kind of, you know, I just finished watching this last night. I'm still mm-hmm. kind of settling with it. I, I, I love this movie. Yeah, my but, four is really solid. But I feel like, you know, there might be a few things here and there, but I love the movie to the point where I, I could see if it hangs with me for the mm-hmm. next few days that I could totally it. bump this up to a five-star movie. Yeah. Because it, 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 it even has so oh, far. Oh, five-star, really? I think so, because even just going through, before we met here, I was, you know, kind of getting the movie prepped up mm-hmm. on my computer and just, you know, going through the timeline of the movie and every single freeze frame is something yeah. you could just put up on your wall. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. I know that's not enough to make a five-star movie, but like it is so visually memorable yeah. to me. Yep. And that to me is, um, it can be the difference between just a really solid movie. And um, if the movie has like 
characters that are interesting and it's bringing you into this you know experience mm-hmm. really well and it does that with the language of film in a way only film can do mm-hmm. and i have a personal reaction to that right. then yeah i mean that's like a five-star movie you for know? a movie to be so immersive yes and so anachronistic is really a difficult oh my, thing to yeah, do really um, well i was going to ask you because i wanted to know um i think if anybody's been listening here for a while they know about your apprehension mm-hmm. towards period dramas Historical, sure. now would you say it's because in general they, they can be would you say like stale stuffy dry is that what you're kind of yeah. getting at when you have a problem with them or yeah. just bored by them and tipping my hand a little bit it's one of the reasons i think i like marie antoinette quite a bit i think oftentimes those movies tend to be like really excited to appease history buffs mm-hmm. like um Oh, I wonder how they're going to show this. Uh, sure. Like who's, yeah. who's interpreting? And they're just of sort of checking off the boxes of what happened. And, yeah. And and you're seeing how what their interpretation of that yeah. thing was. And I, I feel like I've said before, I don't like movies that are essays. Hmm. And that could be a movie that's an essay that's like a persuasive essay and has like this very strong thesis that's an irritating, uh, or a movie that's just an essay reporting on a historical event. And a lot of those historical movies tend to air that way rather than maybe trying to do something new with narrative or mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it helps to know what exactly you you tend to not like about them and then to see if her sort of you know poppy almost teen beat take on mm-hmm. <laughs> on marie antoinette would work or it's a if little the, reductive if the but... sort of uh oh you know what i mean i just mean like uh you know it's oh, yeah that's okay. all i mean i think that's pretty explicit in it and i'm not trying yeah. to say that's all the movie is i just think that her okay. her style of it is definitely there the the anachronisms the yeah. more coming of age tale in it right. and 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 it does mm-hmm. have the i mean you don't have an i want candy montage and not think teen beats i right, mean come right, on <laughs> right you're right you're right you're right um, sorry for being defensive yeah and i'm and i did but i didn't know if what I didn't know is if that would actually play into your annoyance, if that, if that sort of fetishizing of decadence would almost make it more insufferable for you. you yeah. Know? I still think it's the costumes such good and all the style. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll get into but it. We will. You know. Anyway. Um, and, and so I think it goes without saying, I'm very excited that the beguiled is getting such good reviews mm-hmm. and that her directing is getting, yeah. you know, first woman to win the award yeah it can since i don't but it's not without its detractors for very specific reasons which i think also it's always the way with can well i I know but it's also no i know i I don't know if you've read any of the stuff on the beguiled there was a slate piece in particular mm -hmm. about sofia coppola's whitewashing um in it um, which i thought was (laughs) saying this having not seen it i thought was pretty unfair (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to yeah be, to be fair to be fair i listened to a film spotting episode where josh larson and um mm-hmm. and then a guest co-host angelica jade bastien who is african-american who also said it was an unfair <laughs> article and um sort of made a lot of good points that i kind of had the same feeling of having not seen the movie and was like okay that kind of confirms what i didn't like about the article but you can read it yourself it's a slate article called Lost in Adaptation, um, about the Beguiled by Corey Atad. And and the reason I'm bringing it up here, even though we haven't seen that movie, is because he actually says it's sort of a, a, a feature of all of her movies, that she whitewashes in all of her movies. The uh, the tagline under the article is, Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled cuts the book's black characters, which is true. There are black characters actually in the book and in the Clint Eastwood movie from the 70s that are just changed to white characters. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Ooh. Uh, Cuts the book's black characters, whitewashing its tale of the Civil War era South. At this point, that's hardly a surprise, is what he says. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I want to see that movie still. Me too, um, yeah. And I, I may or may not want to read that article. Um, but I, I think that actually segues nicely into talking about Marie Antoinette, because I think one of the things that is the strength of this movie is uh, its point of view. And I think it's that she doesn't step outside her point of view that makes this such a successful movie, that Mm -hmm. she doesn't try to take on the whole of the French Revolution. She doesn't try to take on the whole of French aristocracy. She takes it from the perspective of a teenage Mm -hmm. girl. She takes what would be the obvious story of Marie Antoinette and Mm kind of just cuts it out. Right. It's in the background. Like, literally, it's it's (laughs) almost just sound background Uh most of the time. But because we're so clearly aware of who Marie Antoinette is, the movie is as effective as it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you have that without Sofia Coppola 
going from her point of view and her perspective. Um, and it's safe to say, I think, you know, we can definitely say this is her point of view. She did. I mean, it was based on a book. Right. Um, but it, this is this is her script, mm-hmm. her vision. You know, um, this is she certainly option, if you're going to apply a tour theory to anything, you could probably apply it to this movie. Yeah. You know, well, and if you're going to apply a tour theory to any director, Francis Ford Coppola's daughter is probably. <laughs> sure. But uh, good point. <laughs> she picked she optioned an, uh, a biography that humanized Marie Antoinette a little mm-hmm. bit more. So I think she could have gone with any she could have gone with a pile of facts and she still would have probably come up with this story told this way but the point of view that we get is i mean obviously it's marie antoinette's it starts with everything about the movie the mm-hmm. opening credits with yeah. that like punkish pink like well and it starts with visually and it's really interesting that she does it only visually it starts with the main cliche that we all have that is a misinterpreted idea of marie antoinette it's her sitting with a cake next to her right and that's before the movie mm-hmm. even starts right Right. And she's just kind of looking at you, almost daring you. Mm-hmm. Like, she's got this sort of, like, rebel look on her face, staring at the camera, and she's just got this cake next to her. Right. And you got this kind of punk rock song in the back. Yeah. What to do for pleasure. I do love a new purchase. A market of the senses. The problem of leisure. What to do for pleasure. And it's just kind of like, this is not going to be your typical Marie yeah. Antoinette movie. Like, and then, you just watch, you right, know? <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the, the pink letters on the black, mm-hmm. just like this propulsive sort of energy automatically informs us who this character is going to be, what sort of story we're going to be told. And then she plays with that by like pulling it all the way back to Marie being just a pretty much a silent bystander mm-hmm. in her own future for a while. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get too far into things and theories and philosophies about this movie. Um, but I, I just kind of want to start at that, that point that her point of view is what makes this movie, her ability to articulate that her ability to draw that out in Marie Antoinette is why I think this movie succeeds as, as well as yeah. it does. And I think that Sophia Coppola, you know, in her own life has a sort of, unique ability to sympathize with a character like Marie Antoinette being from a family like the Coppola's where, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that family, especially if she's deciding to go into film, you know, um, about living up to that. And then I was reading, there was an article, uh, where the person who wrote the book, Marie Antoinette, um, her name is Antonia Frazier. Um, she just talks about her experience with working with Sophia Coppola to develop the film. And she talked about how Sophia Coppola actually said to her, um, that, uh, quote, my mother would like me to have a baby, but I would like to have another film. Like, so she was almost struggling with what Marie Antoinette's ultimate yeah. struggle was as she was making this movie that like her own parents wanted her to do the whole, you know, family mother thing. And she really wanted to do what she wanted to do, which was her real love of making a film. Yeah. And of course being a Coppola, and, right. You know, almost being like, uh, I don't want to say royalty, but like, you know. No, I mean, cinema royalty. Yeah, sure. Certainly. And uh, if I can bring in the Godfather 3 thing that I was thinking of. Sure. (laughs) Part of what Marie Antoinette deals with so constantly is everyone's expectations of her and everyone's path for her and the shitstorm she has to deal with if she doesn't live up to those expectations. Yeah, could you think of a better analogy than Sophia Coppola <laughs> acting in Godfather <laughs> 3? Like, sorry, I've never said I was an actor. Like, by all accounts, Winona Ryder backed out at the last moment. My dad just said, here, you do it. And sorry, it wasn't what you expected. Sorry, it didn't live up to your expectations. She and sorry, had... you, you'd like to make me the, the, uh, the scapegoat for ruining the entire trilogy of The Godfather. Right, which know? she didn't. The Godfather 3 had many problems it's not on that its good own. of a movie. Right. Yeah. Um, I was like, of course, Marie Antoinette's a perfect character for Sofia Coppola to tell the story of. She knows what it's like to be just thrust into the into the public eye, naked, basically. Uh-huh. Like here, like be a, a major role in this movie that everybody is counting on to be as good as these monuments mm-hmm. of movies, and, and thrust in by her family, by her family, yeah. right? And I, I thought, like. She knows, she knew what what Marie Antoinette was going through. Like, she gets letting down an entire country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Which also could explain why 
you know, once you make the choice to bring in the, the modern music as an mm-hmm. anachronism, like that she's actually choosing music from that, probably that period of her life. It's a lot of 80s new yeah. wave, you know, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. that was probably her mm-hmm. coming of age soundtrack. You yeah, know? yeah. I don't know how personal this movie is, but it fe- I, I feel like it, if if Sofia Coppola said it's incredibly personal, I would say I, I makes a lot of sense. Get that. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we maybe talk about where you felt a little meh about the first time? Mm. If you're what this time around maybe landed better for you, I guess, or maybe with a little bit more perspective now, going back and watching it was like oh, this really does fit in with what she's doing, you know? Well, I think just knowing what to expect, knowing the arc of it better, um, because I was hoping for it to be punk rock all the way and like a big middle finger to the historical drama. Sure. But it definitely is, it follows a lot, you know, it kind of slides into the feel every now and then. This time watching it, I was like, well, that's obviously, maybe, maybe not, in my interpretation, that's obviously the times where Marie is being stifled by the rules is when the real it was when the real when it feels more like a traditional period piece. right that's when the classical music comes right in. when she gets at their wedding is when the classical music starts like up until that point it had been even the even the original music had been more modern right it was like a little plucky electric guitars and right. things like that yeah and then she gets married uh or even before her dog gets taken away and then the classical music starts the wedding itself actually there's no score and it's interesting because there's like just like sounds of birds Ambient in the background. Sounds, yep. It's kind of inter- it's an interesting choice in itself. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just silence even in it. Yep. You know. Well, it's a pretty awkward. It's awkward and it makes you sit in that awkwardness yep. and then when it does yeah, you really feel for it. Like it's yeah. just creating this empathy because credit to Kristen Kristen Dunst um she's not playing it like she hates it. She's no. really giving it a go. Well, there's so much resolve in her, I feel like. like yeah, she understands. She knows what she has to yes, do. And she's yeah. like, right, I'm going to do it. And nobody's meeting her halfway. Right. So I guess to call the silence awkward is almost under, under, underplaying it because the silence is really loneliness. That's like, true. It's, it's more just, of a loneliness. She's, yeah. nobody, nobody's meeting her halfway. She gave up her dog. She gave up every everything, mm-hmm. every thread that belonged to her home country. And so... When she met Louis, when she met everybody, she was going for it. And then the silence yeah. is all that meets her. Right. And then, and then right after that is when the <laughs> classical music kicks in. Mm-hmm. And it's done in a way that's, I mean, I laughed. I think it's supposed mm-hmm. to be humorous. The dance that they do is so stiff and so distant. And honestly, it just highlights this, the, the absurdity of all the ceremony. It's like when she goes full period piece, it's almost like a statement in itself right. of how dry this is and, that's and how why, ceremonious it is. That's what I and, noticed more yeah. this time. And not only not only is there sort of a humor to it and absurdity to it, there's also a real oppressiveness to it. As soon as she is set on this course, the framing of Marie is just so tight and suffocating. You've got her in her carriage on the way to it. The mm-hmm. walls are just like filling in yeah. most of the s- screen and... When she walks up to Versailles for the first time, the people are so mm-hmm. tight in the walkway that she's got to go. And then the dance, yeah. they've got like a very small amount of dance floor. It's right. not, and everyone's it's not just Beauty watching. and the Beast it's with not this like, like right. dazzling like camera flying around this massive right. room. It's, it's also a, not a ball. Everyone else treats this like it's just a spectator they're thing. They're just watching, yeah. yeah. Um, in the wedding night, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the bed is very confined and people are crowded around it. And, yeah, like you know. that, 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 the visuals that she's doing, you just feel, you feel the eyes, you feel how confined she is. It's a big juxtaposition between the second half of the movie where she's given her chateau mm-hmm. and it's all pastoral. Right. And a, so she's much more not open. Her corset. And right. Like, and when she does go to the masquerade ball and everyone's having a good time, and that's the modern music again. Yep. And, you know, what What I noticed is it wasn't just a lazy, I'm going to put modern music in where it fits and right. I'm going to put classical music no, where it fits. Not at like, all. There's a point to it. Like she is free when it's playing modern music or when she's more herself, you know? Right. So even in the scenes where it's not all about the parties and all that stuff, when it's more just your, when the viewer is kind of just alone with her, even if it's not like the most poppy, punky kind of stuff, it's like the more modern the ambient, score type right. stuff, you know? And I think. I, just watching it once or watching it not very closely, it could feel a little obvious. Like, oh, okay. If so her song is... choices weren't so spot on. Right. <laughs> you know? I know. The, but the more you look into it, the more You're you right. see, yeah. like, this is 
so intentional and so perfect. There's no cynicism to her modern. It's just so genuine and so true to the character and true to the movie. I don't sense that it's, uh, oh, the kids will love this. Right. No, no, no. At all. This is. And there were even times, and I should have noted them, but there were times where I was like, oh, man, this song lyrically is really poignant. I should actually watch this again, like reading the lyrics Mm -hmm. to the song. So I, I think a lot of the critics said like yeah she gave it a shot trying to modernize it good for her uh, yeah but it's not it's i i it's such i it's not just a, like she did it so well well here's and here's the okay i'm going to tread softly here okay i'll preface this by saying we both love wes anderson okay so yeah but that's another director that often gets cited as someone who uses soundtrack and songs very well not to detract at all from what he does but i kind of feel like Sofia Coppola doesn't get mentioned enough in those no, conversations. No, you're probably right. Um, because she should. You know, Jesus and Mary Chain in uh, Lost in Translation yeah. and uh, well, her use Roxy of, Music in her Lost use in of, Translation. Um, yeah, and um, there's a song. There's a, I mean, we already said Air in the Virgin Suicides. Air in Virgin Suicides, but there's also a song from Talkie Walkie from Air in Lost in Translation when she's in the, gar- the Tokyo right, mo- right. Monastery. It, it's the Alone in Kyoto song. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a perfect track for that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, along with her framing and her actual filmmaking, right. it makes her movies feel so youthful and cool. And just, you just want to go back to them. Just, yep. I mean, I almost want to go back to them just to listen to those songs again mm-hmm. in those settings. You mm-hmm. know, the difference I want to strike between someone who uses music like Wes Anderson and someone like Sofia Coppola, um, is that also in both of their movies, they get you know, sort of, there's such a precision and a style to their movies. So there is a lot of similarities there, but hers feel so light, I think, in the way that like, they they never feel labored at all. Um, And there, I think a lot of directors, I don't know about Wes Anderson, but a lot of directors strive for that, but never quite achieve it. Like there's just this controlled lightness to her stuff. Like it's so precise and it's so, thought out to the finest detail right. which is something that a lot of people talk about wes anderson for too right. about like how every little thing seems to be in the right place mm-hmm. i think you could totally say that about marie antoinette every li- and especially when the way she pulls off this rococo style yes. i mean especially that first i mean of time, course shooting in versailles helps of course but they also talked about in the dvd special effects that that mm-hmm. just covered the exteriors right. all the interiors had to be redesigned like all the furniture all oh, the really? food because yeah they couldn't use oh, any the of that food stuff. right yeah the you food know? in the shoes and there's such a precision to what she has, but it still had this feeling of levity. That's to her it. taste. It's just weightless, that's that's, the, you know? that's her taste. That's her coolness yeah. that we were talking about. She. That's not to say she's, West, so, she's a better filmmaker than Wes so, Anderson. I just think that she no. doesn't get the same level. She's so of, underappreciated. Yes, exactly. Because you watch it, and it couldn't have been any other way. And so you watch it, and you think, well, obviously, mm-hmm. but no, not obviously. Like no. she did that so well that it makes it, it that you couldn't imagine it another yeah. way. Well, and if you doubted that that was the case, if you watch some of the special features on the DVD where she's, yeah. they're, they're interviewing the set designers, they'll talk about how she would come to them with these pictures and the pictures had no relation. Yeah. It was like a picture. I saw this picture of this scarf mm-hmm. and I like that color. So can you put this color on that chair? And like, right. you know, yeah. and then she talked about how period pieces use a lot of, um, you know, reds and purples and things to give it a more royal feel. And she's like, I want all that gone. I want pastels, pastels I want yeah. yellows, I want blues, I want, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then and then when you get to the more stuffy scenes, you actually see that's where she brings in a little bit more of the sepia tones yep. and the reds and the darkness and the more baroque kind of look to it. Well, and you know? Dubarry is always wearing that that like red the red rush, dress. Lush red. Yeah. yeah. Um and she so she she so specifically picked the baker to create all the foods and the shoe designer to create mm-hmm. all the shoes like she knows she knows what she wants here's why i think people thought her soundtrack was cute gimmicky partly could be sexism it's always a possibility as far as her be, her being underappreciated people just oh that was a nice Good, good, Sophia. Uh, <laughs> Round of applause. I'm going to yeah. say sexism played into it. But you also have to remember what movie came out the year before and everybody was praising its soundtrack. Uh, I believe that probably people were a bit, after Garden State, mm. a bit fatigued 
from twee kind of from yeah. yes directors handpicking yeah. their their playlist. Garden State was a playlist that Zach Braff made and a movie yeah. that Zach Braff made. And to hear more of our take on that, there's yeah. an archived episode. Go you back can check to our out. episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so people couldn't necessarily. I, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and giving them a reason, not just being philistines and not understanding Sofia Coppola's vision, but. They probably, I mean, it, it could be easy to hear an out of place or a, an interesting soundtrack and think, oh, this person's trying to whatever, just show us what they like, be impressive by being, you know, she would be by being retro, like mm-hmm. all these things. Like you can't just slap a new song on a period piece and think you're right. doing something interesting, right. kind of that sort of take. You right. Know? Um, so I think that like, if you think back to that time, soundtracks and curated soundtracks like that were kind of like this big thing in Wes Anderson too. I remember the, it would have been several years before, but I mean, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums. So I, I feel like that could be a reason why people saw what she did and just were like, oh, okay, this is what people are doing yeah. now. But true to Sofia Coppola's form, no, she's not doing what people are doing now. She's doing what people should be doing and will be doing in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Quick side note, another thing that Sofia Coppola was 10 years ahead on is uh, gray hair as a fashion for mm. women. And on top of that, I, I was. This is the first historical movie costuming where I was like, "They look really cool." Yeah, like, it's not just like that's really impressive and ornate, but like when she wears that first light blue dress with like the blue hat and her hair, the styling of her hair. I'm like, "Yeah, I think people should wear that." Right, like that <laughs> looks cool. I feel like the costuming itself was so integrated into the vision. Whereas I feel like with a lot of historical pieces, you've got a director that basically says, let's hire a good let's costume a good designer. Customer. That costume that person does something does flashy. what they do, <laughs> yep. and I don't need to worry about it. Right. This feels like everything down to the costuming and even maybe, I don't know, maybe even the buttons on the costume, whatever, Who knows? was hand-selected, you know, or at least sort of fulfilling a very specific vision mm-hmm. of Sofia Coppola's because those costumes don't feel out of place with the modern music. Right. Like it feels like right. these are hipsters. That's these are, the same these person are cool people. That. Right. right. Uh, it's a whole package deal with yeah. Marie Antoinette because if the whole, if all the pieces didn't interlock so well, yep. it, it would all fall apart. And but the closer you look, the more linked they are. And it would especially would fall apart. This is something else that I want to bring up that I really appreciate about the movie is, um, you know, I watch movies that we're going to be recording a little differently because I right. need to be thinking about how, what clips are we going to use? Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to do for clips for this movie because nothing, there's no dialogue hardly in this movie. Well, one thing, right. The dialogue mm-hmm. is like one or two sentences. Yep. But so much it's is unspoken. V- yep. It's all visual. It's all body language. Which is you know, another... Which we re- can't really like, talk too much about in the podcast. Mm-hmm. You have to see the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> but and it's so much body language. It's so much um, pacing and, how, and uh, silence. And when it's not silence, it's the music and other things other than spoken dialogue that are telling you what you should be thinking about the scene, what you should yep. be thinking about what the characters are experiencing. And how good is Kirsten Dunst in this movie? Really good. Uh, and I don't think at... The, when it came, when the movie came out, anyone was really looking for that. In no, it, well, if they were, they were looking for a traditional, uh, you know, historical acting role. Like, where was her breakdown scene? Mm-hmm. Where was her moment of like power? Uh, and they're there. Her breakdowns and her powerful scenes are there, but they're so subtle. Mm-hmm. And her face when she's just trying, especially when she's trying to get, you know, her husband. The, to have sex to with have her. sex with her. Those could have, and those scenes could have been played for laughs, and they're sort of funny. They could have been played way more tragically, but really, they're just sort of like a girl who's just like I don't, I don't know. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing. I'm, tr- I'm doing my best. Oh, it's cold. It is a bit chilly. Mm-hmm. Shall I get you a blanket? No. Ooh. Are those your feet? They're like icicles. Oh. Well, sleep well. Thank you. Night. Good night. 
I actually find Jason Schwartzman's performance well, really I was funny. Say, and, I don't know who else you could have gotten because Jason Schwartzman is so good at those subtle visual. Like, there's that scene that we could play the clip where she says, "I hear you make keys." <laughs> Such a good. <laughs> so I've heard you make keys as a hobby. Yes. And you enjoy making keys? Obviously. And to hear it, it may be sort of funny, but to see it, it's like hilarious just yeah. because of the way Jason Schwartzman does it. He has but a way of... it's also yeah. heartbreaking because of the way that you're like, oh, like, like she's, she's trying she's here. Trying. She's trying. Yeah. He has um, such a good way of... It's not just bringing awkwardness to a scene. It's also... It's a condescending awkwardness, yeah. even though, and what's really complex but about Jason really Schwartzman, insecure, but you also get a sense that he kind of does really have an affection towards her. Yes. He just doesn't really know how to express it. Like, right. how could he? He's fourteen. He, he is like jo- joyously showing her her new piece of property. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it comes out of him, not out of obligation, mm-hmm. not out of uh, oh, fine, I know you've been wanting this. It's like I'm so happy yeah. to give this to you. No, be- that's because I thing. really do like you. I really, you really do get the sense <laughs> that they like each other. Maybe they're just they're like great friends, um, or more like brother and sister. But like. There's definitely affection there, mm-hmm. and it's not again, yeah. It, 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 but it's so complex. But also the whole cast: Molly Shannon, Steve Coogan, Rip yes. Torn, yeah. like all these people. Danny Houston was right. great as the brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marianne Faithful as her mother. You would not typically put in a studio p- historical drama, but it's it comes alive because mm-hmm. of them. Now, that reminds me of something else that I really liked about the movie this time. And it has to do, because we haven't talked about every aspect of filmmaking that Sofia Coppola had control over. The sound design does such a good job of demonstrating gossip as Mm. the currency of the court. You can't quite hear things. You catch snippets of it. But there are scenes where that's the only dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's people whispering. husband's been causing a little problem lately. Spending far too much time with the stable boys. Oh, too much. Mariotella looks very pretty, doesn't Yes. Darling, I know life, unfortunately. When you think about it, I was poor. Now I'm too. So young. I think you should go back to your country. And the contest is looking rather down this evening, don't you think? Always down. Always tragic. You're kind of leaning in, trying to catch what they're Mm -hmm. hearing, and then you realize you're just never going to hear it. But you catch pieces of it, like Mm -hmm. you said. It's it is really effective. Yeah, Um, and you catch what you need to hear. Mm -hmm. And just that—that's just another example of how she immerses you in a way that no other historical drama I think does yeah. because really what she, what, what she ends up doing is making Versailles a high school. She sort of subtly and maybe not so subtly equates the decorum of court with the weird social, you, c- you can't things. sit yeah. here. No, we don't wear that on these days mm, yeah. of high school. Now, another interesting thing this time that I noticed was once Marie becomes queen, once Louis the Fifteenth dies, Louis Sixteenth, everything's a little bit messier. There's a lot less symmetry to the shots. Hair is started is like out of place. Costumes are kind of out of place. There's one shot specifically where a servant picks up a plate to like move it, and there's like food spilled on the table. Mm. Everything about Marie's rule is a little messy. Yeah, and you also get the sense that like. And it's only needed with one line where they just say, we are too young to rule. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sets you on course for that whole second act. Yeah. That these are rulers who really didn't know what to do with their power. You yeah. Know? There's a ton of energy that's given to that, that once she becomes queen and kind of starts doing whatever. Um, but there's also a real like palpable uncertainty yeah. and inevitability instead of maybe showing us the uprising she just shows us how flimsy the foundation of the monarchy mm-hmm. was at that yeah. point. We don't fault Marie for it. We're like, well, yeah, 
you've you've wanted to break free so long you've been forced into this position we want you to find yourself and to express yourself uh-huh. but then you kind of start to see how that's going to be her downfall yeah almost like the partying and the decadence was sort of like a, a self-defense mechanism like mm-hmm. it's what worked for her she figured out that like if she could just do this it would make her feel it was how she got control yeah. yeah it was kind of interesting the movie does step in to some historical things like um putting to rest the idea that marie antoinette ever said let the meat cake right which was i thought done really well yeah you know like with the like the fantasy like witch queen yes yeah she's got Mm. the black lipstick on and the way she says it is almost like uh i can't be bothered with this right now right you know right 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 and it just jumps to her and she's like i would never say something like that and you as the viewer were like yeah you're right you would never say something (laughs) like that the marie we know wouldn't (laughs) yeah there's an interview with Steve Coogan on the DVD where he kind of talks about his interpretation of Marie Antoinette. Right. And he, he basically just says she's one of the first victims of a PR problems, mm-hmm. really. And I think that's kind of, you know, whether you agree historically with that or not, that is definitely the, the take of the movie, yeah. was that, right. that she really wasn't so bad. She was put into a circumstance where she didn't really wrong know what place, to do. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And you would mention the sound design, which um, we should talk about you know, the obvious fact that Coppola really doesn't seem to want to talk about the French Revolution at all that's going right, on outside right, Versailles right. the entire time. Right. But I actually found it so effective that uh-huh. she didn't, mm-hmm. and that the first sense you get of it is while you're in Versailles and it's through sound design, you're just you hearing hear the mobs, you know? And it's actually so much more horrific, I think. Yep. Save the queen, madam. They're coming to kill her. Celine, don't be frightened. Let's get the children. It actually, I think, also helps with the feeling of what the movie's trying to say about her character exactly. and the insulation of her character is like, whether that's true to history or not, it conveys the idea so effectively that this was something that she was very separate from, that that was happening outside of Versailles. It was not part of her world. But you what know? you also get a sense of is that they were very separate from her experience. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand her either. Right. Um, which... Is there validity? There's there's some validity to that. Does it mean they shouldn't have revolted? Probably not. Does it mean they shouldn't have killed her? I don't think she's making Maybe. that statement. There's nothing about no, the right. movie where Coppola's saying the French Revolution, you know, was wrong or right no, or whatever. But it's something you, know? you don't think of. Yeah, you don't think of. You, you never think of like yeah. the well. Do you know what it's like to be king? Right. Well, <laughs> or queen yeah. or whatever. The interesting thing is if you were going to make a movie, you know, if I was going to make a movie, someone said, "I want you to make a sympathetic Marie Antoinette movie." Yeah. I would come at it knowing the French Revolution, and I would say, well, what we have to do is show that she really wasn't as extravagant as everyone thinks she is. Right. No, right. not at all. No, that's like, not what, yeah. You know, Sophia she Coppola says, no, this, she was extremely extravagant, no spared expense, right. crazy parties, you know, really doesn't seem all that concerned with <laughs> who right. she's supposed to be ruling over. We're just going to take that as a fact, yeah. you know? In this world, the French Revolution almost came as a blindside. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't see that coming. And the fact that she can still have you sympathize with a character that was insulated within a bubble, right. was that just privileged and see her as a character through that and yeah. actually have sympathy for her when the pitchforks and the mobs start coming, even though you know mm-hmm. they have really legitimate reasons to be angry, you know? And it's a really moving scene when she goes out on the balcony mm-hmm. because... From what we know of her, that's genuine humility. Yeah. That is a real, that's not just a show, that admission that I had no idea and I'm sorry. Yeah. And And, um, and, and that she also is almost in that admitting that she didn't know it was that bad. She can't say she didn't know it because there was a scene earlier where it's not the cake scene, but there is a scene where 
um, the Steve Coogan ambassador character is kind of saying, you know, this is turning into a real problem. And yeah. her best solution, because she's so removed from everything, is, well, we can have less diamonds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like in her mind, she's thinking, we should do we'll, this. We'll, this is, we'll you know, back, yeah, we, we yeah. really need to help these people. There's something we can do, right? right? And that's just within her world, that's the best she can come up with. Right. And it's so naive. Mm-hmm. I think Coppola has enough faith in her audience to say, you know what's going to happen. Right. You know how this ends without having to actually tell you what happens or to actually tell you the weight of what's going on outside Versailles. Or know? the events that lead up to what we know is going to happen. Yeah. This may be the scene you were talking about when they you were talking about the sound design of hearing the people at Versailles before. But it was I'm thinking of that dinner scene. Yeah. And it's like one last ceremony, pretty much. Yeah. That was almost a little microcosm for her world where the dinner, the decorum of it is very, is so clearly absurd. And it's kind of funny Mm -hmm. in that moment, but it's also really sad. But overall, it's really just moving and doomed. And that's sort of basically the story of Marie Antoinette. Mm. Like there's some, at least in this movie, it's, it's kind of funny. But also, if you start thinking about it, it's really sad. Yeah, yeah. But no matter what, she's just a very moving character, in part because she's doomed. Mm-hmm. And the life she lived was never her life. And when it was, when she was trying to live the life she wanted to live, she just caught shit from everybody for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rightly or wrongly. She was really opulent. <laughs> uh, and again, that brings us back to the Godfather 3. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Sofia Coppola, she was just doing what she did. But you also get she the sense... She caught a lot of shit for it. You get the sense, Rightly though, or wrongly. It's a terrible performance. <laughs> it really is. It is. But you also... Okay, so so go with that, actually. If you look at when she's really kind of... There's two sides to when Marie Antoinette is living the sort of free life. There's the side that's full of the parties right. and the extravagance and all the expenses... There's also the side of going back to nature right. and living on the chateau and feeding right. the lambs. And they're like quoting Rousseau. And she's a good mother. And she's a good mother. Right. And, and you get the sense that if she was given the chance or mm-hmm. in a different environment, um, you know, she would have understood More the plight control. of the people. Right. You know, that she would have seen things. She would have been a person of the enlightenment. That you know? also helps you understand... Uh, why should we be blindsided by the revolution? Because she was As somebody who believes in Rousseau, yeah. <laughs> but like Rousseau, like at their core, people are going to have compassion. Yeah. So the idea of a revolution doesn't happen really in Rousseau's world. So right, uh, we just got to all get back to nature, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and we would all be great if we would just do that. Right. You know? So there's there's kind of two versions of that free Marie Antoinette, and um, there there's so much richness to that i mean we could mm-hmm. probably spend a lot of time just digging into those two sides and how they how they seem contradictory right but that in the movie they fit together so well and that we probably all have that to a certain degree in us so it, marie antoinette's primarily the story of a teenage girl growing up in a world that um constantly burdens her with their expectations and uh their assumptions about her so, I mean, it's, it's basically the story of every girl ever, like, burdened with expectations <laughs> yeah. and assumptions that they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, but this girl happens to be the queen of France. It's, it's sort of a story that Sofia Coppola has told a couple times in The Virgin Suicides and uh, Lost in Translation. Virgin Suicides, we've got five sisters who are burdened with expectations from all sides their right. parents expect parents, them to be yeah. good catholic girls they're they're very beautiful in <clears throat> school their so their high school yeah. boy classmates expect them to be sexual beings mm-hmm. but also virginal in uh lost in translation charlotte is expected to be happy <laughs> like right. you've got this good life you've got a successful director or photographer husband slip of a tongue there i think that movie is about sofia coppola and spike jones mm. so he was a director but uh right but yeah, you're right. And, Essentially, and, and, the, and she gets to travel the world, and yeah. right. And what do you have to be sad about? I either saw Lost in Translation right after high school, like the summer after high school, whatever. But I was talking to my high school drama teacher right after I saw it, and she was like, "I don't know. It's kind of tough to be sympathetic for this character who has unlimited money and unlimited time to explore Japan and feel sad for him." I'm like, I, "You don't know. They're sad. Right. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> like that's part of what she's saying in all these movies, yeah. these three movies." You can be lonely in a crowded room. 
Right. Like there's nothing that 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 demands your happiness. Right. Nothing that demands you don't feel lonely. Right. And so we've got this in the Virgin Suicides, the Lisbon sisters, they aren't taken seriously because from the outside, what do they have to be sad about? Right. They've got a good house. They they go to a good school. They've got loving parents, an intact family. They're popular. All these things. There's just this mockery of their sadness and no understanding for them. There's a line in um, Virgin Suicides that I think could kind of be like an important unlocking line in all of those three movies where Danny DeVito's cameo as like the psychiatrist for um, Cecile, the youngest sister tries to commit suicide. And so she's like in this hospital and he says, what are you doing here, honey? You're, you're not even old enough to know how bad it gets. And she says, obviously doctor, you've never been a 13 year old girl. (laughs) And I feel like that's what Sophia Coppola is sort of saying. Like, you don't know what it's like. You right. can't tell these characters they can't be sad. You can't right. tell them that there's like that they're not entitled to human emotion because right. they have because they have wealth or because they come from a privileged you know position. Not so much in Lost in Translation, but especially in Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette, these are people of you know seeming privilege privilege who didn't have any choice being there. So mm-hmm. whether that's poverty or privilege, I think the lack of choice and the lack of autonomy. And the lack of like really feeling free yeah. is the real problem. And if that's a universal problem, no matter what your circumstance is. So I feel like that's where anybody can sympathize with these characters, even if 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 you can get past the fact of like, I cannot imagine feeling sorry for someone who has it all. Right. You know? Well, if you understand that even when you have it all, you don't often have it all. Have it all. And I think it's that's why Coppola's de- depiction of Marie is so vital and unique because she, Copeland knows girls, and she definitely knows a girl who has it all, and I'm assuming isn't totally happy with it. Yeah. So basically, that's why I feel like this story has so much life and so much uh, richness. And it's the struggle, also a universal struggle, one that all women share, which is going from girlhood to womanhood, which is really the period that she seems to be very focused on in a lot of her movies. And you see that in Virgin Suicides. You see it... um, a little bit older with the Charlotte character in Lost in Translation, but she well, is using Bill like Murray. School she's using, to adulthood. Right. Almost, you and, know. and she's using almost like the, the Bill Murray character to get some perspective. Right. Like, you know, tell me if it gets better. I want to note here, I have never heard anybody say that Bill Murray's character shouldn't be sad. Hmm. Even though he's got just as much money and... If not more. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And... And it's a, a good respected point. career and is loved everywhere he goes. Yeah, it's okay if a male yeah, is successful but feels empty inside. Right. But as soon as a woman is successful and feels empty inside... Stop whining. Well, I think what we're... I mean, I feel like what we're saying... It seems like we're both saying that it's so limiting to say it's a unique take on period pieces. Oh, yeah. It's a unique take on femininity. Absolutely. It's a voice that we don't see very often in film, yeah. sadly, you know? Right. Um, and that's why I think it actually is way more of a special <laughs> movie than we give credit for. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because while the, the, like the courtly expectations, those are long gone. But this is the, uh, the societal expectations that girls have are all too real. Yeah and no less stifling. And there's a lot to, a lot in this movie that, that still well, lends a lot of weight to that conversation yeah. about what it means to be a woman in the spotlight even. One last thing I appreciate, maybe we'll have a little bit of time for things we didn't like, okay. although I don't know well, that I have a whole lot. But, I don't, I, it's pretty inconsequential. Um, I was really with this movie and I was so worried about the ending letting me down. Mm. And it totally does not. No, I was going to say, I love that the final ending shot. to this movie. Like, I love the yeah the final shot is amazing just the bedroom destroyed that's all you need yep. like it's so devastating yep. and you know it's devastating without even showing a character like it's just a set piece that's destroyed mm-hmm. and it says everything mm-hmm. uh, but before that the way Kirsten Dunst plays Marie Antoinette in the carriage as they're driving as they're mm-hmm. being taken and when she the way she says I'm saying goodbye, goodbye yep. it's heartbreaking yep. it's perfect it also just shows how strong she is the sort of uh yep. resignation to it almost like it's not it's not a it's not overdone it's not overplayed it's not super sad or tragic it's kind of a a whiplash of an ending i'm saying goodbye is a nice euphemism it could be interpreted various ways and then that final shot is like there was no peace to this mm-hmm. 
she was maybe making peace. She was doing whatever, but it was really tragic for her and really violent and really shocking and just a destroyed room. No, no need to show a guillotine right. or anything like that. No like final you, march. No, yeah. like, no, which is all the trappings of a historical right. period. No, because they're going like, to really final play moment for Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about in this movie, <clears> how she leaves out the French revolution but I think it's almost more telling that they leave out her execution entirely. And that could be her, like, her deification yeah. if they did it, if right. they wanted to. If they wanted to make her a savior figure, that's like, where you do it. You show her just steely resolve mm-hmm. going up to the guillotine and, right. you know. Um, These, like, spitting, a, sneering peasants. Yes, like, and, whatever, yeah. You know, it's a much quieter and in a lot of ways more powerful ending to that movie that I think is just pitch perfect with the rest of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's got, it, it, it's a really interesting bookend to the opening shot mm, with her in the bathtub. Right. Yeah. Like almost this fantasy picture of her, this unrealistic portrait of her. And then this very realistic broken room and both just single shots outside of anything that came before or after. Mm-hmm. So, so anyways, yeah, do you think I feel like there's no reason for me not to move it up to at least a four and a half. Yeah. Um, I think after talking with, with you about it and especially some of the stuff you brought out, I mean, I really do think, I mean, it, it was a really special viewing experience for me. I really enjoyed watching it and, and it hits all the, the marks for me. You know, you know, I'm a sucker for historical right. period pieces and I actually like what she did with it as opposed to being like, this isn't the period piece I'm used to. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It wasn't just, it wasn't just, you know, mischievous. Yeah. I think I'm going to put it up to a a five star. I don't know. I don't see why not. Yeah. Other than it just maybe, makes maybe me look if... like I love everything on this podcast, <laughs> which <laughs> no, I hated yeah. a very Murray Christmas special. We'll put that on the record. Okay. But... <laughs> that's true. That was on the record. All right. Well, I mean, I, clearly we're best buds on this. Yeah. Um, good talk. That is good. If you haven't seen this movie, definitely see it. If you have seen it, but it's been a while, I, no matter what, watch yeah. this movie again. Yeah. And we didn't it get is... any feedback on this episode beforehand, no, which I makes me like think a lot of people have seen an underappreciated see movie. It. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I don't think we can, you know, stress enough. Maybe that when we yeah, maybe when we put this episode out there, to we're really this. gonna have yeah. to say, like, watch this movie. <laughs> Even if you don't listen to our podcast, yeah. you need to watch this movie. Uh yeah, because it's great and criminally underappreciated. I, I agree. I agree. And I am excited very excited now to see the beguiled. Um, yeah. Whitewashing and all. All right. <laughs> So best buds it is. Why don't we go ahead and talk about what we're going to discuss in our uh, next episode of Can't We Still Be Friends? So for our next episode, we're doing something brand new, which is... I'm real scared of this. You're scared right now. I'm really excited. Okay. Well, scared, excited. I'm I'm looking forward to this and I may, maybe shouldn't be. It's never been done before on on this podcast. I don't know if it's been done on another podcast. We can't say. Maybe it's a bad idea. It could be a disaster. We don't care. We don't even know how we're going to do this exactly. Um, we are. We know it involves watching two movies. Yeah, that's, so we're going to do a double feature. We're doing a double feature, a double anniversary, double feature. Not the same year, though. No, but not just the same double year. Milestones. So we've got a movie 90, 1992, 25 years ago. Nineteen ninety-seven, twenty years ago. We are going to be doing a Mike Myers double feature. <laughs> Don't know why. Just because of the anniversary. We saw both these movies of anniversaries. Uh, it's summertime. This is when you watch these it's movies. It's going to be fun. We're going to yeah. watch Wayne's World, and we're going to watch Austin Powers' International, International Man, Man of Mystery. Mystery. Now, what connects them? Mike Myers. Mike Myers. Yeah. And, and anniversaries. anniversaries. So that is what we're going with right now. When we talk, hopefully we'll have something a little bit more cohesive. Right. Maybe we won't. But we don't know if we're going to like talk about one movie than the other one. We don't but know you know who else had no regard for the rules? Wayne. And Garth. And Garth. And Austin Powers. This is the thing about both of those movies. Go for it. I'd have to dig a little deep into the recesses of my mind. Yeah. But as I watch these movies, I will probably be able to quote them from beginning to end as I'm watching them. I will know every mm-hmm. single line in these movies. That's how... I, I'll imp- probably be surprised at how much I remember about Austin Powers. That's how much of an impact we forget Mike Myers had... Oh, my gosh. ...on us growing up. Yeah. Because we, he really, you know, he's, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, he, we haven't... I haven't seen a Mike Myers new for movie. For whatever before. reason... Started making horrible movies. Well, that's the reason. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> you just went there. You know what happened? Shrek happened. Well, okay. That's a good hypothesis. He should have checked himself. 
before he shreked himself. <laughs> so expect this level of discourse when we do our Mike Myers double feature. If you hit up your library or maybe just ask around, these should not be hard movies to find. No. Or if you find enough friends, you could probably act them out. I would say it's possible that I brought new depth to Mike Myers' performance in these movies when I acted them out as an eighth grader. Sure. I, I can I imagine. brought that eighth grade sensibility. Had, yeah. We really emphasized the fart jokes, especially in Austin Powers. There's fart jokes in Austin Powers. A little bit of toilet humor, right? A little bit of toilet humor. I think there's <laughs> Who a, does Mr. Two work for? I, think I remember a that. Touch, yeah. A touch of toilet humor. <laughs> I feel like... A tinge. I feel like perhaps, yeah... There's maybe a five-minute scene sort of on like a toilet. Brush strokes of toilet humor. I feel humor. like there's a yeah. There there are <laughs> there are these under Accents. these grace notes. <laughs> yeah, this will be good. Um, maybe. Well, we'll see. We've we'll never see. done I'm this excited. before. Are you less scared now that we've kind of? I here's the thing. I am not scared at all about watching these movies. I'm going to have a blast watching these movies. Although I was maybe saying before that these maybe might not have aged very well. Maybe you won't. And what I'm more worried about is how the podcast is going to go. Like, uh, how are we going to actually pull this off? Mm-hmm. Discussing both without confusing ourselves. Wait, are you talking about Austin Powers? Are you talking about Wayne? Like, Austin Powers didn't say Party Time Excellent. <laughs> that didn't happen, Ryan. It's We're getting them to, confused. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you're right. This could get dicey. There's two things I want to mention. One is I want to welcome all of our new listeners from the from Philippines. The Philippines. <laughs> We've got hundreds <laughs> of people at least they like us on Facebook. <laughs> Tons of people from the Philippines. Filipino started, teenagers. Started liking our Facebook page. And part of me thought it was, you know, some sort of like spam kind of thing going on. But then we realized this year. Yep. I haven't seen it. But supposedly there is a very popular teen this. movie In the from Philippines. the Philippines called Can, Can We, we Still, Still Be, Be Friends? Friends? Yeah. It and came out June 23rd. So but I think there must have been a lot of hype to it because... It seems like it. We were getting... Because we were getting likes real early. And we had people on Twitter, I think, who were like... Mentioning, mentioning us? Mentioning us or yeah. mentioning our podcast, uh, thinking that we were the movie. Yeah. But I'm hoping if any of you people from the Philippines yeah. decided to listen to our podcast, maybe we uh, brought yeah. in some new listeners. Thank you. Yeah. So welcome. That's all I want to say. Yeah, no, absolutely welcome. Those likes keep... Uh, I don't know. They do something for us. And maybe who knows, you know, because it looks like we're in the mood to try whatever on this podcast at this point. But, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe when it comes out on DVD, Blu-ray, we will talk about Can We Still Be Friends? The, mo- the I think movie. we have to. I feel like if there's a way for us to watch it, <laughs> we should d- do that movie. So this is all the synopsis is for Can We Still Be Friends? The movie. It's just after splitting up, a couple struggles, struggles to detach their lives from one another. Nate, that's our story. <laughs> it's true. They stole that. The other thing I want to mention quickly is in the last episode, we talked about how you pronounced Francis Ford Coppola right. or Coppola as you sort of through. I've just me, heard it through. I've a just loop. Now, heard it. if you've listened to this episode, obviously we've been saying Coppola the entire time because so we cracked the, the mystery. We, we cracked the case. We kind of did it. The, after our did recording, we well, hear me out here after our recording, we, we kind of, what did we watch? Like it was like a Coppola of, wine commercial or something yeah. or interview where they pronounced it Coppola and we were like oh that pretty much settles it wait that didn't settle it what what extra investigating did you do there's a clip of when Francis Ford Coppola or Coppola who knows uh, won his Oscar for The Godfather in 75 there's a clip on YouTube of Goldie Hawn and Robert Wise listing off the nominees and here's the funny thing I, I couldn't make this stuff up Robert Wise reads the nominees and he says very clearly, Coppola. Then Goldie Hawn opens the envelope and says, and the winner is Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather. Huh. Two different pronunciations in one scene. So even though I promised in our last episode that we would get down to the bottom of this, I think we're safe to say it's Coppola. I think. I think so, I too. I think so, too. It was really hard to find an authoritative source on this. I think the most authoritative we can get is the, the, one the, we wine, found. the vineyard. And you kept looking. Well, I just wanted to be sure. Why would his own wine company mispronounce it? You're, I, I had a hard time after we found that video last week, refinding it again. Okay. Real quickly, there's a lot of different ways to reach out to us. Right. Uh, we've got email, feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Uh, Facebook, obviously, mm-hmm. if you live in the Philippines, you've found <laughs> you us. you found us. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, 
Twitter uh, at CWSBF. And we also have a voicemail, which is like Marie Antoinette, criminally underappreciated. Uh huh. Give us a call. I, I know people have their Austin Powers impressions. Oh my gosh. Everyone had one. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I want to hear those. I'm just going to say it without any inflection, but if just call and give us a <clears throat> yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Um, a party on uh, Dr. Evil. Yeah. Dr. Evil. Come on. You've got a Dr. Evil impression. Everyone or you've does. got a friend who had a Dr. Evil impression. You can do an impression of your friend doing it and how bad they were. I'll, we'll take it. We want to hear it. That actually may be better. The number you can call is 847-306-9532. Say it again. 847-306-9532. Say it like Austin Powers. <laughs> wait. Don't. Wait. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, man. That made me so me scared. Yeah. That made me so scared <laughs> that you were going to do it. Uh, thank you for listening. Hope you're enjoying your summer, and we will catch you next time for our double feature. Mike Myers. Mike Myers, Wayne's World, and Austin Let's Powers. Let's stop those VHS. That made me so scared that you were going to do it. Uh, well, that number itself makes me horny. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I'm going to cut that. Okay. All right. So, uh,.